0: welcome to data protection gumbo it's more than just a podcast it's a source of insights to keep you tapped into all things data driven so that you can be the most informed technical expert in the virtual room now listen in weekly to stay educated on the latest trends in backup recovery storage cloud security and more i'm your host Demetrius Malbro and on this episode of Data Protection Gumbo, I have Anand Babu, better known as A.B. Pereyasami. He's the co-founder and CEO of Min.io, who is one of the leading thinkers and technologists in the open source software movement. A.B. was also co-founder and CTO of GlusterFS, which is a file system which was acquired by Red Hat in 2011. Now, following the acquisition, he served in the office of the CTO at Red Hat prior to founding Min.io in late 2015. AB is an active angel investor and serves on the board of H2O.ai and the Free Software Foundation in India. Now, in this episode, we discuss object storage and the rise of SaaS or software as a service, the importance of using microservices in the data protection space, and the role API plays in data management. So let's get right to this episode. Welcome to Data Protection Gumbo, AB. How are you today?
1: I'm doing wonderful, Dimitri. Great to be here.
0: Absolutely. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to just have a, a conversation with the gumbo listeners uh, around primarily object storage and it is still very pertinent uh, for uh, organizations to to understand and also uh, make sure that they they understand what that technology is and also uh, how to potentially utilize that that technology within their own environments so why don't you you start off by just giving the listeners a quick rundown of yourself your expertise and and also just a little bit about uh your company
1: uh my uh my background is uh, distributed systems and uh, computing storage i've been in the open source space as long as i can remember and uh, data data and storage i don't know it's a good thing or a bad thing once you get in you can't get out and i i my previous startup i i built a distributed file system called cluster file system and uh, i didn't want to do anything related to data or storage after that but here i'm here i am again doing object storage startup uh, minio uh, some people call it minio the official pronunciation is minio uh, but we are okay with any pronunciation the spelling is same right it's an object, it's an object storage startup and uh, it's exactly like Amazon S3. The only difference is Amazon S3 is a storage service tied to Amazon AWS, and it doesn't run outside. MinIvo can run inside AWS, outside AWS, every cloud, all the way to the edge. It's an object storage software that you can run on a container, VM, bare metal, Raspberry Pi, just runs everywhere. Uh, and our focus is object store, and uh, uh, people run uh, from AML to data production, archival, backup, all kinds of workloads. Object storage has become one universal data persistence layer in the cloud, and it's now emerging as the standard across the enterprise as well.
0: Okay, so one, one thing stood out. You, you said that you worked on Gluster, or you created Gluster, or it, it,
1: yeah, I was the founder. I I, I created. Really? Yeah, yeah.
0: I did not know that. <laughs> wow. Okay, I am really um, taken aback by that. But yeah, I um, I, I heard of the file system. I, I I've never worked on it, but I've had lots of conversations with other vendors and players in the market that leverage uh, Gluster. So it, it's now it's it's a real pleasure to meet you, Ab.
1: Not, it's always <laughs> a team, right? Like I, it's, I, I shouldn't take credit. I created. A, I happened to be in the right time, right place. It, uh, in fact, I uh, cluster name came from GNU Cluster. It was we okay. it was originally supposed to be a shared memory distributed operating system kernel, not a file system. But a, a, a customers actually they all struggled with the data explosion, and one of the customer paid us, and they didn't have a solution. They wanted us to build one from scratch, and uh, it it happened to become a file system. But that's how we we fell into it accidentally, and ever since I couldn't get out of.
0: <laughs> All right. So, why don't we just start with uh, you? You mentioned that y- your your uh, platform can run across uh, any of the the public cloud vendors. And what what's the importance of? And it it may seem obvious to to the listeners the importance of being able to let's say be vendor agnostic when it comes to uh, running across any public um, cloud provider. Um, w- why do you think it's important? And based on the conversations that you have, uh, what, what's the importance from your perspective on what you've seen?
1: Yeah, I actually heard uh, two different stories and both are actually uh, valid, but uh, I, 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 I it, it also changed over a period of time. Right? like when, when Early on when I saw these developers uh, building modern applications in the cloud, they were actually not using AWS S3 from day one. They actually built it on MinIO because they, when they built applications, they, uh, they actually don't build it on the cloud. They build it on their laptop on Minikube or Kind or one of them, right? And then they push it to CI, CD environment. When they did that, they actually did not want Uh, a a, a file system or like a NAS or a SAN or anything else as an appliance or a bare metal solution or a cloud because the whole point of automation and containerization is gone. Now you can't deploy your containers anywhere until you have the dependency. Imagine all all of your applications are running nicely in a container orchestrated through Kubernetes. Someone now suddenly has to set up some object store or a file system by hand manually with root privileges, all that they didn't want that. Same thing is true for the public cloud too. They didn't want to have the dependency. So they built it on MinIO and then deployed it on the public cloud. And over a period of time, they learned that now it is reproducible. It can run the same thing on multiple clouds, but it started as, uh, idea of reproducibility that was a whole container movement right that i can if it works here it works there it works everywhere else was the whole point of containers and when that happened minivo grew along with the cloud native ecosystem by the time it became mainstream minivo was very popular inside aws i was quite surprised to see that these developers are running MinIO inside AWS. Our number one deployment platform is actually AWS, surprisingly. Even when I told them, why wouldn't you use S3 inside AWS? I can fully understand when you're outside AWS, you should use, like, uh, between Google Cloud Storage or Azure Blob Store. Every one of the cloud, the data persistence layer, which is object storage, is incompatible. I can fully understand why you run MinIO on other clouds, but why would you run inside AWS? They all told me. In, in the, if you talk to the developers, they all will tell you that it, it is already part of the stack. Uh, it's containerized and it's uh, and they are able to spin it up on the cloud very easily. Uh, AWS S3, in spite of being a service, they find it to be harder to provision and automate and all of that. But if you talk to the business side, the IT side or the infrastructure side, they are actually telling us now the multi-cloud story. That they want, organis- they want independence of the cloud, not because they uh, are thinking about portability but actually think about the pricing and uh, vendor lock in issues that their their negotiation power goes down most of them we find that they at the top level of the organization they have a deal with microsoft or deal with aws or deal with google they talk about multi cloud but they are stuck with mono cloud for the uh, because the deal they made but even when they are on the mono cloud they are very clear that tomorrow if i want to switch i should be able to switch and the developers are saying for convenience reasons uh, the containerized model. They want everything to be a layer above Kubernetes, not as a service, not as a bare metal or appliance or anything else. All of this created a perfect storm, and Minio was there as part of it. Whether it's Kafka or Elastic or Minio, any of these are actually packaged as a service above Kubernetes, and they, they get to roll out several times a day. To Today, if you tell these teams, we have made a decision to go with Google Cloud. You can do that. Google Cloud Storage cannot run on AWS. AWS S3 cannot run on Azure. Minevo can run everywhere. Uh, that's what actually created this uh, huge adoption of MinIO in the cloud, uh, as well as elsewhere. Elsewhere is understandable. Why in the cloud? Here is the story.
0: Wow, I, I really love that story. And as you were speaking there, um, I, I, I just wanted to maybe take a step back and I I keep hearing this conversation around containers and Kubernetes and microservices and, you know, just the overall hype of those words. I'm not sure if it's hype or is it real live uh, excitement around what the technology brings, you know, just for a uh, for an organization. What was it like when, and I don't know how long ago this was, when you first started hearing about microservices and containers and kubernetes and like almost like when 911 happened right when the towers were were struck where were you when you first heard about microservices and kubernetes and w- what was going on you know in your world and, and why why do you think it exploded
1: that's actually a very important question right I uh, even for me personally I uh, as I aged I learned the right way to learn about a subject is learn the history and mathematics of any subject you want to learn and uh, to truly understand why this worked why this containerized movement worked and why it was successful uh, it started as a hype high- there's some hype component to it, but there are real benefits and that's why it's sustained. Otherwise, the hype would have evaporated, right? At the time when uh, when when, uh, containers were white hot, there were actually uh, several initiatives from Mesosphere to Cloud Foundry to several competing technologies around, but then you can see even Docker Swarm, uh, uh, Docker Compose, everything settled and uh, Kubernetes emerged as a standard uh, along with the containers. But here's what actually happened. A, a MinIO is built in pure Go like Go language, so it, uh, what it means is, it compi- when you compile the MinIO binary, it spits out a single static binary. And if you tell the architecture, whether it's ARM or Power uh, Power uh, Power9 or whatever, right, uh, or on, on a Windows uh, Windows executable, it spits out. Well, even if you spit out a Linux executable. Uh, if the architecture is same, whether it's Ubuntu or CentOS or RHEL or SuSE Linux, it just runs. It's a single static binary, and it, back then it was like 20 megabyte or so. Uh, now, including all the graphical management console, everything is still hundred less than 100 megabytes. And when it, when it started, I was like, why? Like I, I noticed that con- the community was putting this in a container, and then the container was actually much bigger. They, uh, back then, there was no, no Alpine Linux or the, uh, the, uh, the tiny image, like the, the runtime image. The the, contain, the All of that basically created a, a bulky container image. And the community started doing this on their own. The, we were basically only... Down, the, our download page was only a static binary. Not even RPM, DEB or any like uh, native packages because it's a binary just download and run. It cannot get simpler than that. No installation required. Download and run. It's Windows, dot executable, download and run. I, I loved simplicity. And I not noticed community was like, it's not even, this is pre-Kubernetes. Community was maintaining a Docker image of MinIO, And the image was much bigger because it had Ubuntu runtime. Uh, and I was like, why are, why, why are you guys doing this? They, uh, and, and they would all tell me that, that, uh, that is how the rest of the application stack. Every component of their application, like if, you're, if I'm running a PHP or Node.js or Postgres, everything is containerized. I cannot leave MinIO on a bare metal static binary. I understand it's easy, but I want everything to be containerized so I can craft a single YAML file and spin it up. And that is reproducibility, it's automation. I was like, okay, that sounds right, but if you guys want to do it, go ahead. I'm not going to stop you. Community maintain these images the docker pulls the downloads from those docker community maintained image was orders of magnitude larger than our download page i'm like okay that is what everybody wants it makes a lot of sense i it, it then i want to make sure that you guys get con- high quality image we actually then took over official image and uh, then we started releasing Docker image. From there, Kubernetes was a natural evolution because you need to manage this orchestration. It led to today, like around 1.3 million Docker pools per day. Wow,
0: that that is a lot. That that's a really exciting story. And you know, one thing that I- that I I want to do as well is take a step back. And I know object storage is is primarily your world. And what I would really like for you to do is is maybe walk us through. Where object storage sits just within an overall, you know, infrastructure, whether it's, you know, virtualized and, you know, how individuals are utilizing object storage and how it's leveraged within the overall business continuity plan of mm-hmm. an organization?
1: The best way to understand object storage model is actually look at the public cloud model, not the enterprise file block and VM. It file block and VM is more like SAN, NAS, and VMware type. Combination, right? Like virtual machines, uh, but the, uh, but that model is fundamentally incompat- incompatible with the public cloud. The right way to understand uh, the, the cloud-native ecosystem is look at the public cloud because the, 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 it's not incompatible on purpose. It's incompatible because they removed all the legacy baggage that industry carried for a very long time. That's why it got better. And then, not it's not just about dropping the incompatibilities. We have to solve important problems that are required today, and the, the scale, uh, automation, and there are so, a lot of important things like data protection itself. There is, like, th- there were, there are things that were very hard to do in the file system space. Finally, it became possible and natural to object store. All of that uh, was achieved by dropping incompatibility and paving the way for the simplicity paved the way for achieving something important. Now, object storage now specifically, that if you look at the public cloud. You don't actually think in terms of file and block. They are considered legacy. If you are, in fact, if you see the very early days of uh, AWS, there was EC2 containers when they were launched. EC2 came after S3 was launched. S3 became a hit, and application developers started asking, "Can I run my application closer to S3?" And EC2 was launched for quite some time. Amazon actually kept e- e- EC2 uh, ephemeral. If you restart, the state is lost. You, they would tell you, "Your state has to be in a uh, in an object store." And uh, e- even when they re- otherwise there is metadata, put it in database. Your containers, by definition, to be cloud native, should be stateless. 1D legacy applications are supposed to save state locally uh, for persistence like EBS, EFS, they are all considered legacy. So object storage is the prime blob store for all persistence even ebs if you want to protect it snapshot to s3 your data like the any metadata you store it in database that's the that's the right model object store is where pretty much all the data sits. what data the it is initially object storage started out as blob data but over a period of time what has changed considerably is from the from the uh, from rubric quesity beam type applications uh, from static web 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 applications all the way to AAML, all of the data started uh, writing natively to Object Store. Object Store uh, was originally designed to store blobs. But these layers sitting above Object Store nowadays, whether it's like say security data, uh, metrics data, they're all tiny information. So they actually pack them up through one of this data layer, data services layer, uh, like say whether it's whether it's Grafana, uh, whether it's Loki, FluentD, like Splunk, all of them, e- even VM images, we would pack them, break them up into segments, and then write them on Object Store. So a layer of these data services, Use object store as the data persistence layer. Object store became the object storage. Object store was always the primary store of the public cloud. Mm-hmm. That model is now percolating down into the enterprise as well.
0: Okay, that that makes a lot of sense to me. And mm-hmm. you know, also uh, just that overall conversation around uh, object store and you know, kind of the, the rise of you know, software as a service. And I think it's been it's been said that organizations have well over 200 SaaS applications that that they are running in their own organization. So there are a lot of the software as a service applications. And sometimes the CIO may not know all of the the SaaS applications that, you know, their IT organization uh, are utilizing, right? And uh, I want to get your perspective as to, you know, why SaaS is, is, is is a great first move for organizations, especially if they want to go to the cloud, or if maybe you don't think that's a good option, I don't know. Maybe you'll you'll clue us in on your perspective of of SaaS and and how especially um, storing data in the cloud um, works.
1: Yeah, yeah, we actually now have considerable amount of data to understand the user behavior, our customers' community behavior, uh, and we understand now we can we can finally say we understand this behavior better. The a uh, public cloud, if you actually see uh, a, a dollar per unit of infrastructure, it's actually it's actually expensive. It is like staying in a hotel for, uh, as compared to leasing an apartment, right? Um, but why why customers keep saying it's cheaper? Right. It's actually true that it is cheaper for many of these organizations. The, the, what is the most expensive piece of this infrastructure? Is actually people. Right? If you see all of these IT budgets, a bulk part of the budget is people, and it's huge amount of inefficiencies built on top of legacy infrastructure. They, it, they find it that if they go to public cloud, they they actually cleanse themselves, and it actually it it becomes way cheaper that. Whatever you pay for the infrastructure is still much cheaper compared to the productivity gains you get. And this is where customers are telling that overall, the TCO ability to roll out multiple updates a day. The same app applications team is frustrated with the IT that it takes months to procure hardware and install a layer like VMware and all Kubernetes, all these layers getting a tls certificate is a nightmare many of these organizations and dns registry of opening up a firewall port these guys take the product application from zero lines of uh, code to production in in much less time than it would spin up this infrastructure what's the cost of that is enormous this is where the applications team who were the customers of it went to the public cloud and they say that it's cheaper and the top level management actually acknowledges that and we actually see that that is true but beyond certain scale in the public cloud who succeeded as a SaaS infrastructure in the public cloud at certain scale they know their margins are affecting their core business so they actually start are beginning to look at equinix type colo providers there are two movements we are seeing one they go multi-cloud and then play these cloud players against each other driving the price down which is actually the free market model which is great or they uh, they go to equinix type provider and then you can see now from Dell to other players are now launching hardware as a service HP is coming into this uh, and uh, those servers you can lease it on uh, on equinix no one builds physical data centers it's a matter of who controls data who controls your software infrastructure and the kubernetes type open source infrastructure has made it a commodity and customers are now looking at multi cloud versus equinix but still i think the multi cloud is here to stay even if they put the data on equinix their applications and services is going to be spread across the cloud. Uh, and uh, this is a common trend we are seeing. Applications team uh, loves productivity and the infrastructure team should enable it then coming in the way.
0: Okay. Yeah. Great. 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 You you mentioned that the <laughs> number one expense is is having someone sitting managing um, the application, right? So uh, any of your resources, your, your system administrators, your engineers and you know, having someone there, you know, that's the most expensive component. So what what do you feel about uh, APIs and, and automating? And I, I know that's probably your world. Do you think that that is the the wave of the future around, you know, just, you know, building up the API space and also continuing to kind of uh, in, work with developers in order to continue to, um, you know, integrate with with different applications etc what what do you think about that that space around apis and just automation overall A-
1: api is fundamental to the success of, success of the cloud uh, even minio has always been api first The recently if you hear us like uh, some of these announcements we talk about these co- these uh, beautiful consoles that's very easy to adopt uh, and even without learning api uh, or development you can e- you can easily manage the infrastructure but that's just more of discoverability it's easier to d- learn through the user interface than the docs that's why we are talking about it but at a heart at its heart Every organization that's, that's modernizing itself should think about API first, because it ties into the previous argument that uh, I was talking talking about, people are the most expensive part of the equation, it's not drive space and hardware and networking and bandwidth, it's people. How do you reduce that cost? You have to automate. If machines can do that job better, machines must do that job. There's no point in in, in keeping securing that job for humans, right? Humans can do better things in their life. And if if you see why cloud succeeded was AWS was always API first company. And that's why their cloud looked nothing like the managed services. There was Rackspace, there were MSPs, they are still around, they are shrinking. That Rackspace had no idea who they were competing against because Rackspace was about, I give you a hosted service, that's very different from Amazon's model of, I give you API. Infrastructure is code. It should be treated through API. That's what led to cloud's success. And any organization, why should they adopt this first? They can ask like, but IT cannot write software, but then hire software engineers. Modern infrastructure is code and hire software engineers to manage infrastructure. Every successful company in the cloud are SaaS companies and look at who is managing infrastructure. They are software engineers. They are even capable of writing like Facebook, writing Cassandra to their own PHP runtime to all of it. Look at the skills they have. It's still cheaper. So API first means that you hire software engineers to manage infrastructure. Even the SREs are developers. In most of these organizations. It's about reducing cost and increasing the organization's agility.
0: Okay. And obviously, we, we can't not talk about compliance and yes. regulation, highly regulated industries like, you know, FinTech and financial services and healthcare. You have things like FINRA mm-hmm. and GDPR and CCPA and PCI DSS yes. and... Mm-hmm. Socks and 17A-4. Exactly. <laughs> and, you know, I could go on all day yeah. long with, with all of these different regulations. Mm-hmm. Is there anything specific that you would like to just mention to, let's say, a CIO or CISO around storing data um, in, in an object storage that they need to make sure that they are privy to and that they uh, understand something that they, they may not quite understand.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. So This is actually a very important topic, right? End of the day, it's, uh, it, he, these are the reasons. If, until cloud solves these problems, they for them, they can make a strong case why they should do the same things the same way, that is well understood, right? Cloud actually got this better uh, than the traditional file and block, like, uh, block world. And I, I'll explain some of these details. Specifically, let's talk about object store and object store immutability. Object store immutability is already uh, in compliance with like the SEC-17A, uh, like this, uh, the, the FINRA requirements. Uh, in in fact, both MinIO and Amazon S3, uh, they are actually verified by a third party called Cohasset. They have published their assessment. Uh, it's it's public document. If you just search... MinIo and coasset uh, and or MinIo and object locking, it will show up. It will show up for Amazon S3 too. But what's important is not some getting some certificate, right? It is important to understand how sophisticated it is and the things that were not possible before is now possible. That first at the fundamental level, like if you look at a file system or a NAS, can you make every change you make, right? Every second, every millisecond, every change you make, can I roll back at a sec, at that level granularity? Can I do continuous data protection at that level? Every single change I made to the system, can I roll back or not even roll back? I should be able to see at that nanosecond how that in, how that volume look like across my infrastructure. This volume, that volume, or collection of files or a specific file, can I look at it? You cannot. It's it is incredibly expensive to do change tracking at that level. The closest thing you got is snapshots. Snapshots are poor man's choice. Every change in between is kind of lost and you can't do file level granularity because in a file, you can open and just re- do four, 4K change, one byte change. You can change metadata of the file at extended attributes. It's not possible to solve this problem. Whereas in object store, every single change is atomic and it's versioned. You can not only roll back like a Q continuum, you can see all of the versions of all the objects simultaneously. This is actually a feature modern data protection systems from Rubrik to Beam to everybody take advantage of. They can actually see multiple versions of the object simultaneously. It's not just the data protection software, modern databases like CockroachDB to everybody else. They can actually do the change, change log, the change track. Uh, they actually can see simultaneously different versions of every change they made. And it's built on object storage versioning. Because object storage at its heart, every single change is atomic and it's separately tracked. And you can not only roll back, all of them are there. You don't need to roll back. You can read and, uh, and, uh, You can read and access any one of these versions. Now, coming to the compliance part, you uh, they, you want to lock it, say, from a legal, it's called legal hold. You mm-hmm. want to lock legal. it.
0: To
1: yeah, right? Uh, either legal hold or a retention based on time until six years since the object creation or from this point onwards, nobody touch it. But then if you say like this, we got hacked and I, I know made everything read-only, that's not going to work because the business cannot come to stop. What you are telling is this Even the version, every change you made, you cannot go and tamper those versions. You can actually freeze those versions. That means that even accidentally, you cannot delete. The legal hold, even if you are an admin, you cannot go delete it. That's that's where the compliance mode and governance mode comes. Governance mode, if you are an admin, you can still unlock it. Uh, if you if you are in compliance mode, even an admin cannot override. You look at the CDP like functionality in combination with object level granularity. Uh, that is something that SAN and NAS can only dream of. So it's so sophisticated and it's automatic. There is no administrator going and doing routine snapshots and cleaning up and doing data management. Even with so many versions, someone has to be responsible for this. Here. Everything is automatic. The application continues its life. Then you ask, what about all the old versions? Set up a lifecycle management policy beyond the compliance phase. The lock automatically expires. Then the lifecycle management policy kicks in and clears them or archives them into glacier type or another hard drive based cheaper tier or whatever. All of this is possible. You can see object storage is so much more sophisticated. And at the same time, it's API driven approach I'll, reduces the cost. There is no human in the loop.
0: Wow, that that was fantastic. I uh, you you made me go back and, and reminisce as, as some of the days of when I was working at um, at a large bank, and I was responsible for recovering the um, Lotus Notes files, the NSF <laughs> files of large um, yeah. emails of executives. Yeah. It was a it was a, a hedge fund scandal that was yeah. taking place, yeah. and I was the backup guy, and so. <laughs> I was in charge of restoring all of the email of a yeah. list of names that were on the list of uh, individuals that may have uh, partake in after-hours trading, and uh, it was a a very interesting thing to be a part of, and that's how I, you know, became involved in Soxon Seventeen A Dash Four, and you know all of the requirements around um what's his name Elliot Spitzer. Yes, he was New York yes. Attorney General, and. Yeah. Yeah, I'm showing my age now and some of the gray hairs that, that I have now, I need to go and get some, some dye and <laughs> kind of take away the, the gray hairs. But the maybe the last question here, A.B., and uh, w- one thing that I really would like to, to understand is w- what are you seeing for the future? And, you know, one thing that's really exciting right now is. You know blockchain technology and cryptocurrencies and i've seen a few technologies storage related technologies and companies that are integrating now with blockchain and they have different types of technologies what are you seeing for the future just of of overall storage and you know storing data in the cloud and kind of cloud native technologies
1: i think the like one one interesting trend we are seeing in the cloud is cloud what customers like about cloud is it is infrastructure as a service and it's uh, it, it's productive for them uh, and it makes a lot of sense why uh, for them if shifting from enterprise traditional it model to cloud model it's irreversible it's here to stay now the layer above the uh, about the infrastructure layer what what has happened in the last uh, last two years particularly is kubernetes became one unified in infrastructure standard across all the cloud it's not just across public cloud even on prem if you look at vmware to uh, to red hat now it's kubernetes right it's uh, all the way to the edge kubernetes is now kind of leveling the ground across all the infrastructure and then uh, interestingly the, the the old model repeats that is software vendors get to sell software that runs portably on top of these Kubernetes infrastructure that runs on every cloud. Customers like the idea of like that Snowflake versus Redshift that in the beginning, they had this doubt that there will be nobody better than Amazon on AWS, but that myth has been broken. That is actually an interesting shift that's beginning to change and multi-cloud is accelerating that. Finally, Vendors like us, whether it's MinIO or MongoDB or Cassandra, like Confluent, uh, data stacks, all of them are ISVs. Get to sell the software, and customers are in control of the software technology. Infrastructure is becoming a commodity, Uh, but at the same time, the scale and the speed at which things need to be done is growing many folds. Uh, I think the next. The the, the 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 rapid innovation phase is now reaching certain stability. I think the next five years is actually about uh, the, the the mass scale migration to cloud is going to happen. You know, I I see that in five years. I think the lines will blur between cloud and across cloud and uh, private cloud. They will all look beginning to look. They will all start to look alike eventually.
0: So do do you think that there will eventually be like maybe an open source? tool or component that anyone could store their data on any cloud platform without being locked in. Is is that is that too too big of a thinking or is that not something you think would ever happen?
1: I think cloud itself is built. If you see right, cloud itself is built on open source, okay, yeah. and uh, they like. If you see, uh, uh, cloud vendors have standardized on Kubernetes. When it comes to compute layer abstraction, previously you used to use EC2 tools that were on Cloud Formation, like specific to AWS. That would, if you wrote something, it won't run on another cloud. Mm-hmm. But uh, but today, if you see even purely born-in-the-cloud applications that are, these customers actually write everything on containers and and launch it on top of Kubernetes in the cloud. So it's already, that transition has already happened. There is open source solution for every one of them that uh, whether Kubernetes for computing, like MinIO for object store, uh, like uh, for messaging, like instead of SNS and SQS, you would use Kafka, NATS. There are several, uh, uh, open source has already played a big role uh, and uh, and they are getting packaged as containers on top of Kubernetes. I think the real hurdle today is, again, people, that they, 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 there is resistance inside these organizations for a change. And within these organizations, I see that there is enterprise IT, applications team, uh, uh, which is also DevOps, DevOps and apps team, and then the data teams, the apps team, a uh, uh, DevOps team, and the data teams are actually pro-cloud. Enterprise IT is finally waking up some modern fast-moving organizations. IT also joined the crowd, and they are modernizing fast. To, uh, uh, the, today, the biggest challenge is still people, not technology.
0: The biggest challenge is people. Yeah, I, 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 I believe that, and Especially a lot of a lot of studies that are out there as well. when data is deleted or there's any type of um accidental deletions or integrations happening, it's people, right? It's human error. people people make mistakes. and uh, that's a reason why AI and ml is, is has also gained steam as well to automate you know different processes, et cetera. And uh, you know one one final question for you i I have a couple of college students, so, um, th- I think this would be a great question for some of the, the younger generation that's listening right now is let's say we have a computer science graduate. They're, they're getting ready to graduate in a few weeks because we're approaching the end of the, this particular session. And what recommendation would you give to to them around, you know, what technologies or skills that they should be looking at in order to get that that dream job?
1: Yeah, the... If, if, if I, I can tell about like how we do the hiring, right? We actually don't look for experts, right? If we look for experts, often I find them to become stagnant, right? They, it's like a, a piece of canvas that's already painted. Now I can't change it. If I, either, either I like it or not, that's, I have to, that's where it ends. I, what I find is people who are passionate and hungry for learning, uh, it, it's actually, it, it has to be part of their culture i i find that people who are hungry if i get them if i give them the opportunity in 6 months they are going to learn whatever i task i give them in about 2 years they would actually outdo any expert who thinks that he or she already knows this job and they know it all they are expert they become stagnant but whereas someone starting fresh would outrun them i i find that people who uh, I think the ability to ask questions and be uh, be curious and go learn, uh, keep keep learning. Those are the kind of people in the long run they succeed big. It's not about uh, you have high IQ and you can do things fast. It doesn't matter. Right? If you have you can uh, if you have passion and drive, those are the people we actually hire. And usually you can see, like if I'm looking for engineers, for example, I actually look at their GitHub, and uh, we actually. Be, I, I give preference to not, uh, like, uh, to people who are just hacking random things because they are curious to learn. Right? Maybe they just wrote, like, they, they did fun things with Raspberry Pi or some Arduino controller. I have no use for them in our organization. But that attitude makes a hell of a lot of difference for us. I look for people who, ha- out of their own personal curiosity, not because their professor told them so. They wanted to learn something on their own. Like, like, it may, may, like maybe you learned Haskell. Maybe you learned Rust. Maybe I'm not going to ask you to write code in Haskell. Use Haskell, by the way. But I'm just saying, even obscure programming languages, you act on it because of your personal curiosity. I know you are a learner and i would give you that opportunity to come here and learn because we are learning everything new every day that that's i think that's what is the most important aspect more than if i get if i learn this i'll get a job but then that whatever you learn today is going to go away very soon
0: i agree with that that is some great advice and ab it it's definitely been a pleasure having you on the gumbo i i feel a little bit smarter you know just walking away from the conversation is there anything else you would like to share? Maybe like a social media handle or a plug for uh, from Minio that you would like to leave with the with the listeners?
1: There uh, is a, th- a Minio Twitter handle. Uh, it's called at uh, MNIO, uh, Minio M I N I O, and uh, my handle is at A B uh, The the Actually, we are quite active on the Slack channel as well. The community Slack channel has more than 17,000 members. Uh, they, they, you can join and learn. Uh, like Most of uh, our members, basically, they, they start fixing simple things. Maybe documentation or some bug fixes. That's how they join. And in no time, they, uh, they, fi- uh, they find themselves like hacking serious stuff. Uh, it's a great way to uh, join the community. Um, uh, even if not, just go... Uh, uh, Contributions don't have to be code, right? A lot of times, just learning the technology and then go help some organization that that needs modernization. Uh, And we are here to help the community. uh, uh, And we have the developer-first attitude. That's what is changing the world.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much for your insights and also your knowledge and information just overall about the industry, et cetera. It has definitely been a privilege to have you on Data Protection Gumbo.
1: Likewise, likewise. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you for listening to Data Protection Gumbo. Please follow us on Twitter at DPG Podcast and join our Backup and Recovery Professionals LinkedIn group. Just search Backup and Recovery Professionals on LinkedIn and you will find the group. And until next time, Gumbo listeners, have a fantastic week.